The number one question we get from listeners is, do we have a written step-by-step roadmap to guide you on how to train your dog? We don't, but Standing Stone Supply does. They're the creators of the complete step-by-step dog training program that takes your dog from brand new puppy and gets it well on its way to that finished dog you've always dreamed of. They've mapped out the timelines to help guide you, the videos for every step of the way to show you, and even have the needed gear made into shopping lists to make it easy to supply you. Check out the course at StandingStoneSupply.com to gain unlimited access for all current as well as future lessons and be sure to use the code GDIY to save 10% at sign up. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. key for us is one getting off our bush hog and allowing these areas to produce and produce forage but two you know not going out and buying food plot seed put our time and our energy into managing these native habitats they're going to produce tenfold a food plot maybe for two months is providing some source of food if you were to switch that to a native grassland habitat we're providing cover year-round why do we spend all year training dogs so that we have the best possible hunting partner. At the end of the day, having a well-trained hunting partner doesn't help if you can't figure out where to actually go hunt. Scout and Hunt Maps is the only mapping software on the market focused on upland habitat and shows exactly where and when a timber cut was completed along with specifying what's upland or lowland habitat. In some states, you can even know exactly what type of timber is in an area without stepping foot on the ground. Scout and Hunt Maps was developed by an actual upland hunter and guide that knows the importance of having quality hunting covers pinned on the map before you even hit the road. Scout and Hunt even works for you in the field without phone service, without having to remember to save the area before you even go in. Once you get set up on Scout and Hunt, then you'll be able to spend more time actually hunting rather than trying to figure out where to go hunt. When checking out, be sure to use GDIY 10 to save 10% and sign up for Patreon if you want to save even more. Spend less time asking other people where to go hunt and get Scout and Hunt today. Scout today, hunt tomorrow. 
We get asked all the time what the most important thing to consider is when training and living with a hunting dog and they're often surprised when they hear us answer with proper nutrition. It's pretty obvious when you think about it though. It doesn't matter how well the dog is trained if it doesn't have the right fuel. The saying garbage in, garbage out rings true in dog nutrition. Yukonuba's premium performance lineup goes beyond just protein and fat with a number of different formulas designed to fuel your dog's specific activity level while supporting their recovery and optimizing their nutrient delivery. The proof is in the pudding, or lack thereof, when you make the switch to Yukonuba. You will see immediate results in your dog's energy level and drive. They have a formula for every type of dog from your hardest working dog in the field to your laziest retired dog on the couch. Head on over to YukonubaSportingDog.com to find the right formula for your hunting partner. Make the switch today and let Yukonuba fuel your dog so you can focus on what you and your dog loves to do, work. Have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying, I swear I hit that bird? Well, good news. Maybe it might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out UplandGunCompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform, but look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch rather than standing there still saying, I couldn't have missed that bird. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another week of GDIY. We actually took a weekend off from hunting to come do a nice little nature walk. I got a couple good buddies here. Kyle. Uh, Kyle, go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do. Yeah, uh, my name is Kyle Liebarger. Uh I have a... Uh, social media account native habitat project as well as my tiktok native plant talk but i'm a forester from north alabama um and uh, i just make educational videos about native plants and stuff and um talk a lot about grass and uh, remnants and things like that and just try to make people appreciate native plants so yeah and our second buddy here is jeremy jeremy french jeremy go ahead and introduce yourself yeah my name's jeremy french i am a grasslands wildlife biologist here in in tennessee um and i work for the southeastern grasslands initiative as well as quail forever yeah so kyle wanted to come up he's he's from alabama and he wanted to come up and kind of see some of the savannah work that tennessee's done on a few different spots more specifically bridgestone so we kind of walked uh, the bridgestone wma and got a good feel for everything that's going on out here uh, which we'll get to in, in more detail here in a second and then uh, we met up with jeremy afterwards who can kind of speak to the overall program as it relates to the entire state a little bit better like pr provide that thousand foot elevation whereas me and kyle kind of walked and saw saw a bunch of different grasses and native species and stuff like that uh and one thing that you guys probably don't know you know i know you guys have dogs but you know this being a, a hunting dog podcast primarily i'm always fielding questions from especially uh, new people in terms of 
Where do I find these birds? What habitat am I looking for? How can I manage property better to get uh, these birds? And so I thought it, I love walking with people like you guys because you guys know exactly what it takes to balance out this ecosystem that really takes care of the quail and the bird species that we're after. So Kyle, was this property kind of everything you hoped it would be? You know, give me your honest reflection as far as what it ended up looking like when you put boots on the ground. Oh yeah, it was like exactly what I figured it'd be like. Uh, you know, I'm towards the southern end of the uh, Cumberland, Cumberland Plateau, but you know, it had short leaf and post oaks and and a lot of those uh, savanna species as well as uh, you know a lot of the grasses. Uh, I saw Elliot's bluestem, which I hadn't seen before, and uh, you know, there's some milkweeds and liatris and and uh, I saw wild quinine. I hadn't seen it before, um, and so yeah, it was pretty pretty diverse and uh, looks like. They've had some pretty good results here from burning and doing the management they've been doing on this on the on that area. So, yeah. And so, Jeremy, you know, you kind of linked me and Kyle up to to meeting up in person on this walk. You know, was there something specific you were hoping that Kyle saw once he got out here and actually got to put eyes on it? In, in terms of, you know, you see stuff on social media, you you read this, you see pictures, but you know, being out here is a completely different thing when you see everything really taking hold after what has been about a decade that they've been working out here, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I've spent a, a good amount of time on Bridgestone WMA just walking in my free time doing plant videos and the moment even just driving on the outskirts of the WMA you're just seeing the these glades and rock structures and in people's front yards and these grassland species just popping up everywhere so I really wanted you know you guys to get out here and and hopefully be able to walk around and just see you know when you look at this place you know as a grassland wildlife biologist or someone who who is a bird hunter or or someone who enjoys grasslands like you see the obvious cues and obvious clues like oh well this is what it's supposed to look like maybe we're not there there entirely yet but this is a grassland you know we're seeing rare species we're seeing glades we're seeing savanna indicators like it's very obvious what's going on yeah and so expand on that a little bit more for us you know talk to us about why it's so important that we pay attention and not only you know respect and appreciate what the savannah looks like on the ground out here but why is it important you know it's what why are we focusing on this and trying to get more savannah and grasslands in the state of tennessee yeah absolutely i think i I like to be very upfront about you know where my where I feel about things if I walk into an a true old growth forest and I see it's an old growth forest I want to protect that and I can look at cues and habitat indicators and and use my botany training and my ecology training and say wow this is an old growth forest you know and really appreciate that and and come to defend it now the same goes for grasslands. I'm, whenever I'm walking through grasslands or if I'm working on a project as a biologist, I'm never going to walk into an old growth forest and say, a true old growth forest and say, let's convert this to grassland. But if I'm walking through, you know, a second growth forest that very obviously has the species that, that Kyle was mentioning, mentioning like shortleaf pine, uh, post oaks, blackjack oaks, these trees that are, are savanna obligates, I'm going to say, oh, well, 
obviously this should be a savanna. You know, we need to reduce some of the, the junkier trees in here. And when we look at the ground layer, you know, and, and the different like indicator species and forbs, like there's just cues that I'm looking at, you know, to say, hey, this is absolutely, you know, grassland system. And the reason identifying those areas is so important, and, and Kyle, I'm sure you agree, is grasslands have declined by, you know, on the low end, people, you know, estimated at 90%, on the high end, 99%. You know, so, so somewhere within that range, grasslands have disappeared throughout the southeast. We've seen, you know, seven, a decline of 700 million grassland birds in the past couple of decades. The quail population um, has declined by 50% in the past 10 years, and it's projected to decline another 50% in the next 10 years because simply we're losing these grasslands and we're losing these shrublands um, and and we're not managing for them, you know, both on private and public lands. And the species are, are screaming at us saying, hey, like, we need some help. We need this habitat you know, we need fire, we need open, you know, areas, not everything should be a hardwood forest. Absolutely. And Kyle, you have a unique perspective because, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast a number of times and it's been on other podcasts and, and social media posts everywhere. I like your kind of perspective and what really brought your attention to the native grasses and the need for education out there in terms of what you're seeing within your own community down in Alabama. Uh, speak on that for a minute and talk to us about was it similar to what J Jeremy was just talking about in regards to up here as far as just species dying off and just everything was overgrown. What what really stood out to you to get you motivated and active within Alabama? Yeah, so uh, I guess first of all, I've you know, before I was a forester or interested in grasslands, I was a hunter, and so I've been you know hunting my entire life. And so as I you know learned more about hunting and, and these ecosystems, it kind of led me in the that direction of improving biodiversity. And so as a forester walking different properties, um, I've seen you know. I've seen the lack of uh, biodiversity on a lot of them, a lot of invasives. And then I've also found places that had uh, a lot of uh, diversity left, surprisingly, and and uh, mostly because they were kept open for some reason. And uh, so I kind of, I guess, realized how diverse grassland ecosystems were and how beneficial they were to uh, to wildlife. And so I really, I really think, you know, the future of hunting and uh even, you know, hunting with dogs, I mean, it, it lies in the habitat. And so if you don't have the habitat, you're not going to be able to, uh, you know, hunt and, and uh, run your dogs like like we're still able to do today. But, um, you know, first off, I think it's going to take educating hunters on on what these places look like. And uh, because there's no, there's not really a lot of good examples of what they look like. Most people can't see a grassland and say, yeah, that's you know, a really diverse place and that's good for wildlife. It takes getting out there and seeing them. And uh, with the very little amount we have left in North Alabama, um, people just don't know what they look like. And so that was kind of why I started, um, you know, making videos and stuff, bringing, bringing up uh, grasslands and showing off those places and showing people what they look like and why they're important and uh, how we can help bring them back. And I, I think what you just said, and, and uh, Jeremy just alluded to it, just the decline of the quail species in general. And, you know, we're going to pick on primarily the bobwhite quail here, but this kind of goes to the majority of upland species. You know, we talk about a lot in rough grouse, and they need early successional forests. It's kind of the same thing with the quail out here when we're talking about savannas. So we, we need to manage these, this ground better. 
so that the populations flourish. Because right now we have listeners that, you know, I'm going to say that probably the majority of the listeners right now, they understand why we're talking about habitat and conservation right now. You know, if there's nowhere to go hunt, then why are we training dogs to go to hunt, right? Uh, but there are a few people like, man, this is a hunting dog podcast. You know, leave the conservation stuff out there. But, you know, I think it's really important because we've spoken on it to where you can do pen raised birds and planted birds all you want in your backyard or in a training field is completely different than wild birds and for us to really enjoy and and really warrant training these gun dogs the way we want to we need wild birds you know i didn't get my my bird dogs to go train on pen raised birds year round i want to go hunt birds and so it's paying attention to guys like you and Jeremy, you know, you and I've talked a number of times over, you know, the past couple of years and you've helped educate me in terms of what this region in the Southeast and Tennessee more specifically meant in terms of grasslands, you know, centuries ago. And I mean, I think it was you that, that taught me that Tennessee used to have prairie chickens out here. Yep. You know, it's just like, that's a species that will, I don't see that ever happening or coming back to Tennessee again, but you know, it's, it's been proven throughout time to where neglect can lead to species leaving the landscape. We used to have prairie chickens here. We used to have elk here. I mean, I know they're doing the elk rehab, but you know, the buffalo and everything used to come through Tennessee and it's proven that they, those species will leave and they're not coming back. And so talking to you guys i have a whole new perspective and respect in terms of native grasses when i first got involved in this i didn't really fully understand what native plants and native grasses truly meant so one of y'all take you know give us the the common sense just basic root level definition of native grasses and species and why that's so important Uh, i'll take a swing i guess (laughs) take a swing um so Oftentimes when we're talking about these prairies and these savannas or, or these grasslands, they're referred to as grasslands. And I always like to be very clear on this point that, like, the grass in these ecosystems are important. They're kind of the, like, charismatic megafauna of the prairie. But what's really important for a lot of our game species um, are those forbs, those wildflowers, the, the diversity out there, the things that are attracting bugs so that quail or turkeys um, can sit there and their poults can bug on them, get crude protein, as well as also putting, putting off a seed source. So the more diversity we have out there is is better. And when I'm looking at for, for grassland habitat, um, you know, that can range on anywhere on a scale of like a really, really pristine prairie remnant where I'm seeing, you know, 150 species of different wildflowers in a meter square. And it can still be, um, you know, really kind of crude area that's, you know, ragweed and, you know, some less desirable species. But at least, you know, it's creating that kind of early successional habitat. So there's kind of a gradient there between like, okay, this is early successional habitat where you're going to see ragweeds and you'll probably have, you know, some shrubs and and some weedier species to like, holy crap, this is a, a pristine grassland remnant. The latter than that is, is, is obviously exceedingly rare because we've, we've lost so many. Um, but that's what I'm looking for a lot of the time. You know, I'll, I'll help and like any of it's good, really, you know, it's better than nothing. But even if I'm hunting, like if, you know, I'm a big hunter as well and I, I spent a lot of time running my lab on, on pheasants in the Midwest, I'm looking for 
the best grasslands out there because those those grasslands are going to have the most seeds they're going to have the most bugs and the most diversity and diversity to a grassland bird or a game bird like a pheasant or a quail or a turkey just means more food sources more cover sources more area to thrive um so that's really what what i'm looking for and maybe you don't have any high quality grasslands near you um, but i guarantee you you know you should have some some ragweed areas and you know some areas just early successional habitat that absolutely can hold those birds as well um does that answer your question yeah yeah no absolutely and and so kyle talk to me about you know he just mentioned ragweed a lot you know there's a lot of these native grasses and species that kind of catch a bad rap to people think that those are the nuisance plants you know from your ragweed and i hear a lot about beggar's lice people hate beggar's lice right you know what what's the disconnect with people now from understanding that that's really what is beneficial to the ecosystem versus you know our kind of selfish desire to be able to walk through our fields without coming away with beggar's life on our pants right yeah so i well i'm one of those people who uh swell up when they're around ragweed too so my face was swollen <laughs> earlier this year um but you know I, I really think it's just you know a lack of understanding i mean we learned it in uh in high school and ecology i mean it's basic ecology the foundation you know you're looking at the look at trophic levels the foundations native plants i mean those seeds uh provide food for birds and so on and then those wildflowers also attract insects you know if you're wanting to feed quail you want to feed turkey poults uh i mean all sorts of animals you want insects and if you want insects you have to have those plants and so it's kind of if you can basically trace everything back to native plants. I mean, human existence, uh, you know, our game species, even your bird dogs. I mean, they wouldn't, you, we wouldn't have bird dogs today if we didn't have native ecosystems. I mean, those native ecosystems, those native prairies are what attracted, you know, or what's, what supported things like quail and, and uh, you know, and therefore we have dogs now that are able to help us hunt those and i mean it's everything goes back to native plants it's the foundation and and i think just people don't stop and think about that um it and to me that's the that's the fun part about it is trying to figure out how everything connects together and and the, the more you look at it the, the more you realize that those native plants and that biodiversity is really the foundation and and so uh you can't have those if you don't have sunlight on the ground and uh that's the biggest thing you bring sunlight to the ground and a lot of these so south, southeastern forest you get more of that biodiversity coming in and and so that's kind of i guess my take on it so fast forward kind of i guarantee you there's somebody sitting here thinking okay so native grass is native habitat if it's native it should be there somebody's asking the question well if that's what's supposed to be there where did it go how did it get overtaken you know talk to us about that from invasives to you know uh just man-made issues to where we can't manage it you know through as massive fires that we used to have or tornadoes kind of speak on that point because i know i hear that a lot when somebody's like well if it was native and supposed to be here it would still be here right so you know a lot of our ecosystems in the southeast and and even nationwide they evolved with fire you know and the first thing that early settlers did was block everything off you know and remove fire from these landscapes so some of these landscapes haven't seen fire since you know european settlement or or close to it these species you know um evolved with that fire we have pine species that won't pop their pine cones unless fire is present we have you know 
these species that need that early fire that's putting nutrients back into the soil to, to really exist. So the number one thing we did, um, well, maybe not the, probably the number one, I'd, I feel comfortable saying that, is remove fire from these landscapes, right? Historically, you know, in the fall, winter, and even early spring, we get these giant storms, right? With huge lightning storms in the southeast that would have struck, um, you know, some dry area. And that fire would have burned for until it hit a creek, a river, something that stopped it. And not only that, but there was a lot of cultural burning in the southeast. So, you know, Native Americans really knew and understood, hey, if we burn these areas, we see an ton of game species you know the bison come and graze the early growth the elk come here the deer come here everything comes here well if you're out there literally surviving (laughs) you know it behooves you to become very good at understanding how you can be the most effective hunter and have the most game species Um, so they also utilize fire in a lot of these landscapes and in a lot of these systems both both savanna forest and, and grasslands We've removed fire. So when we're talking about going into those areas and people are saying, hey, well, if it's supposed to be there, why isn't it there? It's because we've augmented a healthy um, ecosystem. We've changed that. The fire is not there because of us. So its number one tool is no longer functioning because of human human interaction and interference. And when we return fire to those ecosystems, like you guys saw at Bridgestone, where they went in, they did a cut returned fire at different intervals you see you know i was there earlier this year and it's covered in orchids like rare orchids you know you see them by the thousands there or you see you know shortleaf pine which is you know a fire hardened species or blackjack oak or post oaks or bur oaks all these tree species that have adapted to fire to exist in the grassland area um doing really well and so so my main thing would be fire and so that, that that was really fascinating for me to see because, you know, Kyle, as you saw, we were walking around and it, each little section that they had, they had, they had different sections of this property and different levels of fire. You know, this one was burned every year in the fall. This one was burned every year in the spring. This one was burned every three years. And it kind of gave you a better idea of what you're really looking at and the benefits of fire and what it looks like throughout the years if you don't burn. And so, you know, is there anything outside, you know, I read the book, The uh, the Big Burn, and talking about how the Forest Service started fighting fires back in Teddy Roosevelt and all that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about that may have been one of the biggest mistakes overall with the best intentions at the time was putting out fires. But then you fast forward decades and now we're in a situation where half the country seems to be catching, you know, a, an uncontrollable fire. And it's like the ecosystem is begging to burn because it's been neglected for so long. Um, Kyle, what was your thoughts when you were able to actually put eyes on this one was burned just this past fall? This one's burned two years ago and you know you were able to really just see it in person and what that meant yeah i think that's awesome i, I do the same on my property and and i don't have a i don't have a big property just five acres but i split it up into sections and and burn at different times of the year and that's going to you know contribute to the overall diversity you know being diverse with fire is going to help with your plant diversity and and uh leaving some standing is going to make sure there's still cover there for them and uh that's uh that's how i do it and i think what they're you know we're doing out there is uh really great they're i think they're going out about it and uh in a really good way and that's how i think that's how um you know our ecosystems 
would have been naturally is it would have been like a mosaic of just mixed you know different ecosystems and you know certain areas would have burned off one year and certain areas would have not burned off and then you know you'd have you know bison coming through and grazing some at a certain period of time and then you know they might not be back in that area for you know months and months and uh so it's just being sporadic and diverse with your management is going to help you know in in making the land more diverse overall are there any cons to burning you know i'm putting myself in the listener's shoes right now to where they're like okay fire's always good go burn you know they're gonna go talk to their dnr or whatever saying let's go burn this property or let's go burn my property is there ever a situation or plant species that maybe you don't want to burn first that there are some other steps that you should take to try and get rid of it like uh, fescue comes to mind down here in the fescue belt uh is there something that you would say you know be smart talk to your biologist before burning that could actually make matters worse in the next year yeah absolutely um fescue i like to spray it and then burn it um you're i don't think you're going to make the problem worse um but you can treat it with you know some grass selective herbicide or something but the case where it's you're really going to mess up by uh, burning is if you have a closed canopy forest uh, running fire through it uh, not having sunlight get into the ground you're not going to get that regrowth uh, on the forest floor like you want and so that that can be a negative things a negative thing at times um, so running a fire through the forest you want to make sure you go in there first and you know open up the canopy a little bit and and that's exactly what you know they're trying to do in tennessee to bring back grasslands is is let's open up the canopy let that seed bank express itself bring fire back and the ecosystem is going to take care of itself from there on out but it takes some human intervention human intervention to come in there and remove some trees every now and then and uh and that's what would have happened prior to fire. We had, you know, just like Africa, we had huge uh, megafauna, uh, like ele- well, we didn't have elephants, but we had mammoths and mastodons, things like that, that would have pushed over trees and, and large megafauna. And uh, so there's always been something on the landscape removing trees. And after, you know, those huge megafauna were gone, Native Americans took that role and, uh, and then after Native Americans, Europe, you know, Europeans showed up and they were cutting firewood. And, you know, you got to think people around their home place are going out there removing a few trees every now and then. It wasn't for wildlife. It was to, you know, stay alive. But um, they also played that role. And I think in the past couple of decades, we've stopped that. I don't, I don't think the average person really fully recognizes or can appreciate the amount of grazing that a herd of buffalo or some, or elk or something could really put on the landscape. So like when people talk, you know, back to what I was getting at earlier, somebody will be like, well, if it's native, it should be there by itself. We shouldn't have to manage it as uh, stewards of the land or anything like that. Let it be, you know, let nature take its course. But we've already mentioned because of us, certain species have left. We have changed the landscape so much to where to get the native grasses back to where we don't have to manage it. We have to first go in and rethink about how we do all this. You know, there are certain sections out here as Kyle and I were walking, you know, the the main thing that we're looking at was fire. But there's also a lot of places that are tilled up. What's the benefit of tilling up or scratching the surface a little bit as opposed to burning and just just leaving the ground undisturbed? So uh, I'll say this as cautiously as possible. Every project has nuance, right? As as a biologist, I might see a couple hundred people a year 
um, and write a couple hundred prescriptions a year. Generally, no two are going to be the same or, or exactly the same. Some might be similar. You know, you might use similar herbicides or similar fire recommendations, but, but no two are going to be the same. So in certain situations, very select situation, winter light disking can benefit Forb diversity. Now, I'm not telling everyone who's going to listen to this to go disc everything that you can. Please don't. Consult a biologist first. But it is a useful tool. And these tools are important, you know, because you you speak about, you know, hey, we have to manage this stuff. There's so many nuance and and factors into how we can manage because we've altered the landscape. We haven't only altered the landscape by removing fire. We've introduced tons and tons of invasive species. You know, these plants that are coming over from Asia, South America, um, Europe, like they didn't just float across the ocean. We brought them here as ornamentals. We thought they were great ideas. And now that's oftentimes what, as a biologist, I spend time teaching people how to kill or remove from the landscape. So biologists are, are going to use, or, or grassland conservation, they're going to use a mix of tools to manage habitat. That might mean doing some winter strip disking. can be beneficial, but it can also be detrimental if you don't know what you're doing. Um, depending on your habitat. That might be mean use, utilizing herbicides. And herbicides are kind of one of those things that people get very up in arms about. But we've damaged some of these systems so much, like you say we're in the fescue belt. We're not going to restore like a really good grassland without killing that fescue. Yeah. The best way to kill that fescue is a grass-selective herbicide. You know, and get in there, spray it, burn it down, and then we have good, good you know, conditions to restore that grassland. Um Fire is obviously going to be a huge tool and driver, but there's just so many tools out there, and and strip disking just has, happens to be one of them. And if it's used in the right way, it can be extremely beneficial. If it's used in the wrong way, it can be extremely detrimental. Yeah. Um, so I would always say, you know, before you go disk anything, you know, consult a biologist or an ecologist or a botanist to make sure you're not going to destroy some really valuable plants that you already have. Kyle, I'm going to throw you a softball because I know you talk, love talking about this topic. I'm going to continue on with this fescue. Talk to us about the detrimental effects turf grass has had on our landscape, especially when it, you know when you look at the southeast. Uh, I know you spend a lot of time doing videos and, and education as far as what people perceive to be a pretty yard or beneficial uh wildlife habitat within their backyard why is turf grass such a dirty word in your your world well um i guess it's mostly because of the mowing that goes on there um that that mowing favors uh those turf grasses uh our native grasses can't hold up to to mowing just you know every couple weeks um you know they can handle some mowing every now and then but they're not like turf grasses. Turf grasses, you know, it's like they love mowing. And, and so they, the more you mow, the, the more dominant they become. And then eventually you don't have any natives there. It's all solid monoculture of turf grasses. And, and so um, that's, that's one of the reasons I hate, I hate turf grass. And then it spreads into a lot of these, you know, remnants and places and pastures. And, and uh, then before long, there's all your natives are gone. And then you got solid monoculture of grass. And then our quail can't use that. Um, you know, they can't run across, you know, turf grasses, uh, you know, think about Bermuda and things like that. Um, they can't get up underneath it and use it as cover. Um, it, 
and those those turf grasses often don't play well with the with other plants uh, a lot of our forbs that exist in these grasslands um, will get out competed by those turf grasses so the way our native warm season grasses grow our bunch grasses they allow a lot of those forbs to grow in amongst them so they don't really bully other plant species out and uh, they kind of play their part in the ecosystem and play well well with others and uh, and that's for a good reason because they're native and they've been here forever it's all you know part of the ecosystem so those turf grasses can kind of be a hindrance in a lot of cases on the topic of mowing i know that this is kind of a big thing that we talk about every spring uh, especially with on our own little echo chamber and, and group of friends that we all have is park the bush hog especially in the springtime right park jeremy it burned the bush hog. So you're not a fan of bush hogs in general. I don't think we're eradicating the bush hog from the <laughs> landscape. But uh, at least if you're a landowner or, you know, you know somebody that hays a lot, you know, what's the benefits of just leaving it alone in the springtime? If you're going to hay, maybe hay once in the fall or something. Why do we tell everybody and preach, leave it parked in the spring and summer? Well, there, there's a couple of reasons. The, one of the main reasons is nesting season, you know. We need to leave the that uh, that cover out there for our nest our ground nesting birds like quail and turkey and make sure we're not mowing over nests in in general. Um, I say burn the the bush hog, but the, <laughs> uh, in all honesty, a bush hog is also another tool. Yeah, if it's utilized right, it can be extremely beneficial. Um, I'm all for working the land and, and utilizing the land. Um, and it's renewable resources, but we have to do that considering wildlife and ecology and try and do that as the least impactful way to that resource as possible. Um, so making sure that one, you know, we're not disturbing nesting season. If you go run over a, a quail nest, I mean, that quail might re-nest that year and might not, you know, you, and that's an entire generation that, that we're removing from that population. But also a lot of the botany of how these plants grow. You know, if we go through and we, you know, mow the same spot like Kyle is talking about over and over and over again. So like the, these turf grasses, you know, fescue. Um, in botany, we have a term called an apical meristem. The apical meristem of a plant is its growth point. So when we talk about like fescue, the reason you mow your lawn and then you have to go out in two weeks again and mow it again is because its growth point is at the base. So it grows from its base. A lot of our beneficial wildflowers, that is not the case. So if we're going out there in spring um, and, you know, smoking all these wildflowers with our, our bush hogs, they're not going to grow again until next year, uh, a lot of them, because they've already put off buds. They've already, you know, tried to do their growing. They're not going to do that the next year. If we go again next year, we do it again, and we do it again. You know, these plants are long-lived perennials a lot of the time. You know, a lot of our prairie plants are long-lived perennials. They can live, you know, in the, in the root bank for 100 years sometimes um, in ideal situations. But we will exhaust those reserves. So not only, you know, saying, hey, I can wait till the fall to take my, my hay cutting, but alternate when we're cutting, allowing these plants to complete their life cycle allows for the next generation of plants, as well as, you know, those plants to consume and store enough energy to be healthy. A lot of time when we're looking at these systems, you know, that are, are disturbed too much, and I'd consider a bush hog disturbance, that's what we see. We see it become dominated by fescue um, because of where its growth point is. Nothing else can sustain in that environment. Um, those would be my two biggest points on like, Hey, park the bush hog, maintain your trails. Um, 
another good point that I don't think we talk about enough, and I know this is a, a, a bird dog podcast, but we've been like very much, Kyle talks about it sometime, and me and Kyle are buddies, so we talk about it together. We've been very much fed as like a hunting society. We're all hunters here. Most, I, I imagine everyone who listens to this podcast yeah. is a hunter. Um, this idea that native habitats don't feed our deer, our turkey, our wildlife enough. I've even seen, you know, upland areas planted in food plots for, you know, quail or pheasants or, or stuff like that. Or we've been pushed this kind of rhetoric of like, hey, buy this seed with a deer on the front, yeah. of it, you know. And when we look at these systems, so if, I, if I'm if i sitting, you know, in a grassland at, you know, you guys were at Bridgestone today. There's about a thousand pounds plus of forage per acre in that grassland. If I look at a closed canopied forest, there's about a hundred pounds. There's not a lot of food there. And that's for, for birds um, as well as deer, turkey, stuff like that. So if we want, you know, to have the these areas to, you know, for big deer or more turkeys or better upland um, birds, the key for us is one, getting off our bush hog. And allowing these areas to produce and produce forage, but two, you know, not going out and buying food plot seed, put our time and our energy into managing these native habitats, they're going to produce tenfold. You know, a, a food plot maybe for two months is providing some source of food. If you were to switch that to, you know, native, a native grassland habitat, you know, we're providing cover year round. We're providing food year round. We're providing forage in the worst months. We're providing fawning cover. We're providing, we're hitting all these check marks instead of just, oh, well, I can plant this corn or these soybeans or these clovers for two months. And you didn't even mention the cost benefit of it. You're not buying seed every year to go plant the same food plot over and over again. You're saving on your time and work effort from having to go disc up and plant that seed and let it grow, right? You know, this is not to say that you can't go if you have a property in a field and you go do like a small little one or two acre sunflower plot for dove, right? You know, you know, mixing in a little food plot here and there isn't going to kill it. But I think we live in today's society where the average person is kind of like, for better or worse, this may not even be fair to say, but, you know, it's kind of that QDMA sense of looking at how to manage for wildlife. Everybody just wants to put a food plot on the ground in there. I'm taking care of the wildlife. And, you know, I say it on the podcast week in, week out when I'm hunting for for, uh, birds, I'm, I'm looking for three things. And I'm looking for two out of those three things for me to walk it. Your security and cover, your food and water. And food plots only give you food. That's it. And so it's not as beneficial. I do want to circle back and touch on one thing that you said, because this is a bird dog podcast, the tracks, the trails, you know, even the people that have properties and they manage it and they let it, you know, grow up, they have the native grasses, you know, you're not going to go bus and cover every time that you need to go work your bird dog for five minutes. So when it comes to cutting your, your trails, What's the best practice in your opinion? Is it using the disc to chop it up? You, you mentioned winter disking is, is good, but would you use your bush hog at a high level or use the disc? Because I've been kind of told both. I don't know which way to go with that myself. Yeah, so, I mean, those are, are both good ways to do it. And if I were, if you were to say, hey, right now, here's a 200-acre property. I want you to manage it the best way possible for birds. The way I'm going to lay my trails is going to be a, 
according to my burn units. I want my trails to be fire breaks, you know. So usually I'm going to maintain those with bush hogs. If they get to the point where they have too much vegetation, I may drag a dish, disc across it because I want those fire breaks ready to as soon as I get those good fire cues that I'm out there lighting a match, you know, and I want it segmented in a way where I can have multiple different burned corridors, you know, somewhere in that 10 to 25 acre range if I was managing, you know, an average 200 acre plot um, is what I'm looking and, you know, leave, leaving the rest. So that's how I would manage my trails very intently on using them as fire breaks. Kyle, so talk to the people that don't have 200 acres or 50 acres or even 20 acres. Talk to the everyday average person that's listening to this and like, well, I mean, what can I do? You know, I don't, I'm not in charge of the public lands. I don't have big tracts of land. I just own, own a bird dog and I like to go train and, and shoot birds on occasion. What's the average person on a half acre lot to do? Is there anything that is worthwhile for them to do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, leaving uh, or not leaving, but introducing some of those native plants back onto your property. That's what, uh, you know, I do on my own around the landscaping. Um, and then, uh, you know, I dedicate a small portion of my place back into just native habitat. So it doesn't have to be, you know, of course I've got some yard, but it doesn't all have to be yard. Um, I can, you know, section off a small part and let it grow up into native grasses and, and natives. And I mow, I mow around mine with a lawnmower. Um, that's how I, I get it down as low as possible with a lawnmower and, and use those trails as fire breaks. And so then I got little trails we can, you know, my family can walk around on and then uh, have nice little grassland area with a bunch of native wildflowers and native grasses out there and and uh, on my own i've just you know let whatever comes back come back and i've got a really you know starting with fescue i've after killing it off and burning i've got some really good results a lot of uh really interesting stuff has came back and that's been fun to watch um but you can also you know find some native mixes and plant some and and uh you know i think planting those wildflowers that'll keep the wife happy and i'm glad you said that because i was just about to say how many people do you hear to talk about well you know i don't let this stuff grow up because it's ugly right and it's like all right you've never really seen a full-on native habitat or native grasses field to where you have all the pollinators and the wildflowers coming up because it's freaking gorgeous yeah you know when it's in full bloom and, and especially what i like about it is every time you go walk you see something different so something that's you know really in bloom and everything in the early season you you know it's like every couple weeks something else is coming out and you're seeing you know the progression throughout the entire year so i'm glad you said that because a lot of people think you know it's going to look like the dormant fields that you see when you go out hunting year-round but that's not really the case is it yeah um i guess it's all matter of perspective but uh a lot of what returns is uh you know a lot of plants that people would want in their landscaping and and i've kind of you know made a business out of that with my nursery i've a lot of those grassland flowers you know cone flowers uh black-eyed susans milkweeds and i mean there's you know lists of hundreds of them they they look really good around the house as well and they're you know attractive and then they attract uh things that are also attractive birds and songbirds and butterflies and things like that so if you stop to appreciate it um you know you can kind of learn to understand how how beneficial they are and uh you know, they can attract some things and they're anything but ugly. And and the uses 
of the plants, right? You were talking earlier about a, a, a lady that went to one of your demonstrations recently um, that was talking about she makes wine from all kinds of different native plants in the area, right? And then you're talking about, you know, that the, there are different hops to, to make beer with, right? You know, talk to us about with when you bring the diversity, you're going to have all kinds of different plants that have different uses and you can actually you know, learn to appreciate the plants even more than say just a giant monoculture cornfield that somebody plants. Yeah. I'm not actually sure if anybody's ever made beer with native hops, but that'd be uh, interesting to know if somebody has. Um, but yeah, she, she was using uh, pawpaws and persimmons and muscadines and, you know, there's all sorts of fruit uh, out here in, in, in the grasslands. You got native plums and uh, I think I, on the drive in here, uh, Jeremy may be able to tell me or not, but I think I saw some uh, hazelnuts and uh, things like that, and those are all prairie shrubs. And so there's there's just about, you know, whatever you're interested in, there's going to be a native plant that, you know, can fulfill that use. It's just, you know, you know, figuring out what which ones and uh, kind of exploring. And to me, that's the fun part of it, um, you know, learning new native plants and figuring out their different uses. Something some, a lot of people don't think about also is I'm like you, Kyle, I've got a lot of, I've got a little native meadow in my front yard, um, as well as, you know, a vegetable garden. But a lot of people don't realize, you know, they say, oh, you know, I've got, the, you know, a tenth of an acre, you know, or a very small area. I'm in this municipality. I'm in the city. W- what am I going to make a difference? And, you know, if, if we all, you know, banded together or like work together and we utilize just small portions of our, you know, yards and our front lawns towards native wildflowers and just native habitat in general, that area together would be larger than our national park system. You know, so everyone's like, oh, well, what can I do? Well, if enough people say, oh, well, I'll do it. I get it. You know, I like these native plants. That, that habitat, like, it starts growing and growing and growing and makes like a very substantial difference, you know, in, in wildlife life. I make a lot of videos just in my front yard, you know, showcasing how different species of birds and butterflies and like all these pretty things are very present in my yard. I get tons of hummingbirds. Um, and then you look at my neighbor's yard that's just, you know, mowed with you fescue and there's nothing there and like there's they have no you know wildlife to look at and like i almost feel sad for them honestly (laughs) but well and that's a good point because we saw i mean what you know we we didn't come across the big covey of quail like we're hoping to just kind of bump into today but we saw a good variety of birds and wildlife just walking for the for the couple hours that we had a chance to walk today you know we kicked up your rabbits uh you know lucy even found a possum at one point uh and then some woodcock we found some woodcock uh Kyle, what were your thoughts on that? Because you just said, you know, you've talked about how you're not really a bird dog guy. What was your thoughts about, you know, when when the dogs went on point and a woodcock was was there to actually get up? Yeah, I thought that was awesome. I've, you know, bird hunted out west, but never around here for, you know, woodcock and and quail. And, and so that was really cool to see. Uh, and yeah, all, the, all that's just evidence of how productive these ecosystems are. And while we were walking and talking and, and, and we saw, saw the woodcock and everything, you mentioned you do have a Chesapeake Bay retriever. You, you have done a lot of shed hunting in the past. And what did you say when it came in terms of where you would look for sheds, where you would send the dogs? Where were you actually going to hunt for sheds? 
Oh yeah. Uh, oh, for years people would get so mad because I'd find sheds and you know they'd go out looking for them and never find any. And and uh, I'd put on some briar chaps and I'd go out and just go through the thickest stuff I could possibly find, and that's where I was finding sheds. Um, it's good. And those deer like those thick spots. Um, so your grassy areas, your your uh, brambles and just young forest thickets and uh, places like that. That's where I was always finding them because that's where, you know, deer can bed down. They got food, they got cover, and they got everything they need. So, And and this is where I think this is the main point that, you know, at least me when I hit record that I wanted to get to because especially, especially down here, it seems like there is a very large disconnect when it comes to deer hunters specifically, turkey hunters. It's like they don't fully recognize the full benefit of habitat such as this on the landscape. And it's it's crazy to think because if you come out here and just walk for 10 minutes, you see deer trails everywhere. You see deer beds. You see, you We find deer sheds all the time. I'm with you to where, you know, I'm just bird hunting. I'm going to find a deadhead. I'm going to find a shed just by kicking ground. If the deer didn't benefit from this landscape, they wouldn't be out here. So, you know, why, why do you guys think that there's such a large disconnect between your average hunter or outdoorsman and what really benefits the wildlife? So, I would be considered in the hunting R3 world as an as a onset hunter, right? So, I grew up in South Florida, like the swamps, and like did a lot of fishing, spent all my time romping through swamps, petting alligators, you know, Florida man stuff. <laughs> um and when I went to college, I moved to Iowa. Iowa is a prairie state. Everybody hunts in Iowa. You know, they hunt pheasants, they hunt big deer. And I very, like, quickly, like, realized, hey, like, I like being outside, you know, and, like, I like eating wild animals, you yeah. know, I like fishing. Like, so I started hunting. And you learn out there very quickly that, like, when I'm hunting, when I was hunting in Iowa, um, and I hunted there a lot, these grassy areas, these, you know, early successional habitats, these prairies are super, super just, you will find like cracked down trails where it's like, those are where the big bucks are. They're in the tough cover because there's where the most food are. And the number one thing that like determines, you know, antler growth is forage. People like to harp on genetics. We can't control the genetics of wild herds. If you think you can, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but you, you cannot control the genetics of a wild herd. There's too many things that play factors. But what grows big bucks is forage. The reason why Iowa has, has super big bucks um, is because they are so much forage availability. They do have a lot of agriculture, but they have tons and tons of prairie right tons of crp all this stuff is geared towards prairie that's where i learned to hunt so it's very natural for me to go into a prairie go into a grassland and be able to not only pick up on game sign in those areas but also in my brain say okay this is how i would hunt this area right this is my choke point this is how i'd hunt it with a bow this is how i'd hunt it with a gun because you know i didn't learn to hunt in florida i learned how to hunt in iowa a prairie state right so if we look at the average hunter today, you know, let's say the average hunter is somewhere between the years of 30 and 40, you know, maybe that's not accurate, but I think you're somewhere in there. And he's been hunting timber his whole life, right? Because we've seen the grasslands have been disappearing in Tennessee for hundreds of years. So most hunters in, in Tennessee in the Southeast, they hunt timber, right? So they're like, okay, this is how I'm supposed to hunt. When they look at grasslands, it's like a puzzle that's new to them, you know, and like 
they they're like, where am I going to put my tree stand? Where am I going <laughs> to do this? And I'm, it's like, and I tell people all the time, um, like I'm like, I promise, if you just take the time, figure it out, you know, just like anything, you will kill bigger bucks, you will kill more deer, you will you will be a more successful hunter. And that's coming from someone, you know, like I said, I've been you know hunting for about eight years now, and I hunt everything. You know, I, if if I can kill it and eat it. I'm game. (laughs) That's just how I am. Um, And this year alone, like I haven't been hunting for 20 years. I killed four deer, you know, easily. And I'm talking, you know, and hunting these grassland areas is where I'm targeting. Hunting these clear cuts is where I'm targeting. Hunting these places, you know, that's where the deer are. That's where they want to be. That's where the most forage value is. I think some people have just gotten, you know, so much push down. Um, You know, we see like these people on, on hunting TV and they're hunting, you know, in the timber or they're hunting over a food plot or they're, they're doing these things and they're like, Oh, that's high kill big bucks. But that's not true. That's not so, you know, the big bucks are going to be in your swamps. They're going to be in your prairies. They're going to be where that forage is. And maybe it's a little different for you to hunt there. And I think that's what pushes, that's what drives that disconnect is that it's different. You know, they're not going to the spot where, you know, dad took me when I was 10 and we killed my first deer. Yeah. So getting over that kind of educational hump, I think is really hard for people that are, especially if you're not a bird hunter, because bird hunters, we hunt that stuff all the time. We see the deadheads, we see the sheds and, you know, we're just used to looking at areas and saying, Hey, how do I set up on this bird that I know is 20 yards from yeah. here? And, right. we, and we see the actual deer. I can't tell you how many times I've almost ridden deer, just, you know, walking into flush a bird and, Oh, there's a deer here. You know, I was showing Kyle a picture of a huge buck that I kicked up in North Dakota a few years ago in CRP to where we had no idea there he was there. It's the, the deer's out there. I mean, you know, I've had the the fortune and the, and the uh, blessing to hunt the Dakotas. I've hunted, you know, what people really consider the national grasslands, and I've seen everything from your big bucks to your to your. Uh, uh, antelope to your moose. I kicked up some moose in, in, in North Dakota. And so it baffles me. I, I truly have a hard time understanding when the deer hunters and the whitetail hunters down here have trouble understanding that it, it's going to benefit the, the herd. You know, it, it truly is what's good for the bird is good for the herd. And it just kind of gets frustrating to the point to where we have to do what we can to try and educate these people because it seems like as hunters, as as the hunting community, we've kind of failed each other to help police our own and educate our own and pass this knowledge on generation to generation like you guys were referring to earlier in the Native Americans back in the day. They knew this stuff. You know, the, the settlers knew this stuff when they first came here. But it seems like in the past few decades, everybody's lived in this golden age of deer and turkey. And it's like they've completely forgotten what it was that got them to rebound those populations. I mean, is there anything that I just said that you guys would kind of disagree with that on? No, no, not at all. And Jeremy took the Jeremy took the words out of my mouth. Uh, I was going to say, if you need proof, the Midwest. I mean, that's proof enough. And and this this year, uh, I was hunting the Black Belt of Alabama, and uh, I, I shot a twelve point. And he was walking right out of uh, the prairie. I mean, uh, there's so prairies productive. do kill deer. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. that was probably the best time <laughs> of my life too. I saw one bigger than that after I shot him. I mean, they it was crazy the amount of deer down there. Yeah. 
Well, guys, you know, I, I think that we could honestly do an entire series of podcasts on this topic, and it's probably much deserved, but I think there's there's uh, better people to touch on this topic than, than me. I mean, you guys have taught me so much that just a few years ago, I never thought that I would, you know, know as much as what I feel like I know. And I, I appreciate that. Uh, Jeremy, you know, I can't let you go without getting your first reaction to you came down a month or so ago with <laughs> with Harold and we got to get you on your first upland hunt. That was your first upland hunt in general, right? Or was for, it just for, for Woodcock? For Woodcock. Woodcock. I've, okay. I've, I've got a, a bird dog. He's not really a bird dog anymore, but I've shot a lot of pheasants over him. Um, but it was my first woodcock hunt. I've shot a lot, done a lot of rabbit hunting as well. And woodcock was so different than anything else I've ever hunted. I mean, just like I can remember that first flush, you know, I think it was Lucy that went on point. Um, and you were like, Hey, you know, go flush this bird. And I'm walking up and like pheasants to me don't really hold tight. Um, you know, and rabbits run. So I'm like five feet from me to to lucy and i'm like dude there's no bird here like and then all of a sudden i take a step and i about got hit in the face of the woodcock and i'm trying to fling this 20 gauge up to get a shot on and i was like oh my god is, is this gonna be it and as the day went on i mean just the way woodcock flush very differently than you know the the upland hunting that i'm used to where like if we're on the prairie the pheasant flushes you've got a time to kind of draw a bead yeah. and like follow that shot um, there's no time for that in woodcock. <laughs> just, you're, you're just instinctual. Yeah, you're just getting that, you know, sh- that gun to your shoulder and and setting up and saying, "Hey, I think the bird's gonna go this way." And good yep. luck. It's a, it's a blast. I think we we flushed a ton of birds that day. I finally, after a bunch of failures, killed one, and I just like was so excited. I was like, "Desk pop!" <laughs> 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 no, uh, it was. I mean, it, it was a blast. I had such a good time. <laughs> I, I, I thought it, it was hilarious. You know, we we videoed. Me and Harold were off to the back. We, we don't get, usually get the full appreciation of seeing it unfold in front of us. We're usually in there with it, so we we sat there with our cell phone videos and we watched it back later. And we're just laughing at the shooting <laughs> you and Cody were doing. It, it, it's hilarious. Uh, well, guys, I definitely appreciate you coming on and what you guys do to get the message out and put habitat on the ground for these birds because again you know not to beat a dead horse but without these birds there's really no sense of me having the bird dogs to chase them with right you know that it gives us a goal it gives us a target and that's what we're out here to do and as outdoorsmen and hunter you know you may be a quail hunter but you have to also be recognize and be aware of what affects the other wildlife as well and i think as upland hunters we do a pretty solid job of that um, but if you have the opportunity to educate other hunters other small game hunters other big game hunters take it you know we we have got to stop the infighting and it comes down to an educational level and you can't keep pointing the fingers at the agencies and dnrs at some point it has to come from the individual hunters sharing it within their own little small groups that's how we're going to change the landscape over time you know you're not you're not going to be able to have the agency or dnr say hey come to this classroom setting and sit down and let me tell you why you've been wrong you know, people need to see it. So if you're out there, you have a, you know, a buddy that's only deer hunted, invite them out and go walk the savannah, invite them out, go walk the pastures and prairies and show them what we're talking about, because that's the only way we're actually going to make a difference on this landscape. Uh, Kyle, 
tell everybody where they can find your stuff because I know you got a lot of great stuff and cool videos for people to check out. Yeah, on Facebook and Instagram, it's Native Habitat Project, and on TikTok, it's Native Plant Talk. And and I just want to encourage everybody if you're out recreating in grasslands and and uh, you enjoy grasslands, take pride in them and and don't be afraid to speak up for them. We got a lot to be a lot to be proud of in these uh, ecosystems. Jeremy. Where can somebody else find more information? Absolutely. So I would say definitely look up Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. Um, look at their website. Look at their Facebook. Um, I'm pretty active on there. So, you know, if you're on there, you'll see my face. And I, I agree. You know, Kyle's got a ton of great content. Um, I'd consider Kyle a close personal friend, and he's going to point you in the right direction. And we should absolutely be proud about our grasslands. I mean, we have the most biodiverse grasslands, you know, in the country here in the southeast. We just got to protect them. And, you know, we've got great bird hunting culture as well. And we should be proud about that as well. Absolutely. Well, is there anything else that we left off before we wrap this up? Well, guys, again, I appreciate it. Kyle, we're going to get you back up here and get you to shoot your first bird over the dog's points and have some fun next year. But, uh, again, check it out, SGI, Native Habitat Project. And with that being said, we'll check back next week. All right, now picture this. You just finished a long day's hunt or a long day in the training field grooming your next versatile champion. You've run through your entire string of dogs in anticipation for the next fall. You think the day's over. It's not though. Your day's not over until you let that ugly dog hunt. No hunting or training session is complete without capping it off with one of the spirits from Ugly Dog Distillery. They're Michigan raised and purebred handcrafted spirits. They have everything you need from vodka and gin to your more traditional after hunt choice Kentucky bourbon. We aren't much on the flavored whiskeys here, but we will go on and tell you that you're missing out if you don't try their peanut butter whiskey. Unlike the other peanut butter whiskeys out there, Ugly Dogs is made with real Kentucky bourbon and not just pure grain alcohol and syrup. So after your next hunt or long day of testing and you're trying to decide what to drink, reach for the bottle with Ruger, the German wire hair pointer on it. It was handcrafted by people just like us, dog people. Every adventure starts somewhere. Make sure yours includes an ugly dog at your side. Explore responsibly. All right, Harold, you know that there's somebody listening here that, that may not understand why us as a dog training podcast would take a week to talk about this but i think uh you and i especially given the the past few weeks here in tennessee and the political landscape uh it's kind of on the forefront of our minds and kind of reminded us that we need to do a better job of educating and spreading this information because us as bird hunters we have to give back to the resource at some point mm-hmm. yeah i agree it's uh it's a pretty important episode really for us um and it, it feels like uh it may not be everybody's favorite episode, I guess, that listens to this podcast. You know, I mean, if you li- if you're from Minnesota or anywhere else, it may not feel relevant. Um, but it's a pretty big deal for us because, um, you know, there's some recently some legislation in Tennessee to where it basically shut down some habitat creation for upland birds, which we don't have as much anymore. Um, and I, a lot of times, I'll talk to people from up north. And be like, yeah, we just don't have the bird numbers or the habitat anymore. And, th- and they just say, really? Like, they almost just don't believe you. Yeah. And it's real. And um, so it's kind of a big deal for us to kind of be able to use a platform um, in a positive way uh, over an issue that needs to be highlighted. Um, and it's not necessarily a Tennessee issue either. It's um, 
definitely uh, more of a national issue, but it's definitely prevalent here right now because of everything going on. And, and I think we really need to put a spotlight on what's kind of happened just so that people kind of understand how how it escalated just so quickly here in Tennessee, right? It's, you know, this this wasn't a slow roll that... So essentially what happened is Tennessee announced a project, a Savannah project, in, uh, in partnership with SGI, Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. They announced it, and the, the local community hunters within the area in that county weren't very happy because they thought we were clear-cutting the mountain. And then a politician got involved. Cheryl and he threw a community meeting. It went horrible. It was a giant cluster. Then next thing you know, everybody rallied and put enough pressure on the state to end up canceling the project. But that's not just all. They they took that inch and now they're trying to take miles and they're actually trying to take control over local WMAs within the state and handing them back over to the county. There's another bill proposal that is trying to limit TWRA for only being able to log 10 acres at a time. And I know a lot of people outside of Tennessee, they're like, well, what does that have anything to do with me and my dog? But, you know, Harold, we're the living example to where we it literally came out of nowhere. It was just like, you know, we wish that we had habitat. We thought it was coming down the pipe. Oh, we're not getting that. Oh, they're trying to take that. Oh, they're not allowing TWRA to do any more logging. It it really was in a matter of two weeks, really, that all this kind of took place. And so uh, it kind of raised the red flag for a lot of us and realized that, you know, we talk about it within our circle a lot, but we need to do a better job uh, conveying this information to everybody because, man, it, it really is that quick that uh, your entire hunting landscape can kind of look a little different or at least... Uh, potentially right they're fighting it but uh it's it's just nuts to me how quickly that escalated mm -hmm. so this is what little we could do was provide some good information was to have a couple you know a biologist jeremy on and kyle come on as well who you know knows a lot about grasslands so very informative for me because i don't even know everything about what i'm even fighting for which at the end <laughs> of the day seems kind of silly although you know i mean Other I get than, it. You know, I get what you're saying. There, yeah. Right? Like, you know, okay, the, the, the indicators are there that these grasslands belong there. So let's further that conversation instead of just shut it out altogether. And that's what I'm getting at. And, and I would mo try and motivate people to talk with outside your echo chamber, right? You know, as us as bird hunters, especially, you hear this stuff all the time, but we're only talking to each other. And the, all this work was halted because of other hunters deer hunters specifically followed by turkey hunters you know this wasn't anti uh hunters or you know quote unquote tree huggers or hippies that you know a lot of people want to pin it on this was actual hunters within our community that just don't understand what wildlife habitat looks like and, and it's sad and it's unfortunate and you know we've had we, we've been kind of mad here recently but we said you know no use in getting mad at them uh let's just do a better job of talking with them and trying to explain it to them you know the best we can then if they if they want to turn their nose up at the actual facts and science in front of them you know that that's on them but at least they've been informed and uh, you know they can just go disagree all they want but they can be wrong <laughs> yep 
So with that being said, uh, you know, one thing that came through this is I had uh, Michael McCord. You know, we had him back on, uh, I think it was episode 92. He, he came back on when I first moved out to my property, and he kind of helped me get started putting some uh, cover on the ground and doing some of this wildlife grasslands, native grasses stuff out here. But uh, I saw him, he, he put in uh, on a Facebook group recently the other day, he was just asking everybody to introduce themselves, but no tailgate pictures. He said, everybody, you know, give me your pictures of what you hunt and your successful hunt, but show me in the habitat that they're in. And I thought that as hunters, that's something interesting that we could do a very small step to where stop taking tailgate pictures and just do it in the habitat. And then that way, when you're posting it or sharing it, people get an eyeful and they associate the animal that you just killed with where they're at. And we stop having such a large disconnect where people think, you know, oh, mature hardwoods is great for deer. No, if they start seeing deer killed in their actual environment and what we preach perhaps it'll be easier for them to understand the message we're trying to give them does that make sense Mm-hmm. yep totally so, so i mean i'm not sitting here you know i'm not your guy i'm not going to sit here and say stop doing gripping grins stop showing your birds with your dogs no by all means do it but i'm going to challenge you come up with something a little bit more creative show the actual habitat it's not hot spotting you know don't do it in front of a sign at a wma or something don't be stupid like that but just share the habitat you know if you shoot a a grouse or woodcock show the cover that it was in and maybe it'll also start help help divide close the divide for new hunters as well because we've all been there like we don't even know what cover looks like Uh, so it can kind of help everybody and spread the message and hopefully it's just easier to educate people on on what wildlife habitat actually looks like. So, all right. You have anything else to add on this episode? I mean, we kind of spoke to how important it was, but did you have any thoughts listening back to it on your end? I mean, I just hope that uh, I hope it gets shared a lot. I hope um, it starts some conversations. I don't really need to ramble on anymore because i just agree wholeheartedly yeah with everything they say and i hope it hope it gets done i don't want to be one of the last generations to shoot a wild quail yeah and Um, and jeremy specifically said that in the episode how long did he say that quail you know timeline wise if we don't get our acts together if if he had to guess how much time they have on the landscape at least down here in the southeast um like 10 years i was about to say wasn't he said 10 years i think i mean that's just nuts just think in a decade if we don't get our acts together and start getting some of this habitat down the bob white quail the southeastern game bird you know it, what, like what you were talking about earlier when you're talking to some buddies up north and they're saying oh can you go get in quail and you, we're not really they kind of look at you funny uh, I mean, it's, they don't really believe it. That'd be like saying, you know, I went to the Northwoods and there's no grouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's crazy to think within a decade we could lose lose the bobwhite quail, uh, at least huntable, right? Right. So, uh, well, now that we've kind of put in a, a damper on the mood there, Harold, let's uh, talk about the training camp for a second. Yeah. so it's uh gonna be may 6th through the 8th it's gonna be up at mark and martha ann's at webfoot kennels in clayton new york 
uh, last week we announced it that it was the dates and everything. And uh, this week we're looking at the price right now is we're going to do 20 slots for dogs, handlers with dogs. We have 20 slots. And the first 10 go to the first 10 patrons that sign up, and they're going to get it for, for $250. All right. Then the second 10 slots, it's $350. All right. That's one dog per person. We can have additional people there, but each observer is going to be $150 more without dogs. So if you want to attend, you don't have a dog or you haven't even gotten one yet, you're more than welcome to sign up and attend. So that'll be $150 to you. You tracking, Harold? Mm-hmm. All right. A lot uh, of numbers. Do it. Yeah. A lot of numbers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this includes training equipment and meals, does not include travel and housing. We'll have more details on that, on where everybody can kind of stay and link up and obviously more itinerary stuff. But I wanted to put the pricing information out. It's very similar how we priced it out last year. And, uh, you know, everybody last year was talking about how it was probably too good of a deal for them. They felt felt a little guilty, to be perfectly honest. That we actually had people saying that. Uh, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind of event. I mean, it's a different structure. Uh, round robin small groups you're getting a, a lot more interaction with the actual trainers helping you with your dogs so uh, if you're interested don't wait shoot shoot me an email at gundog at yourself at gmail.com and i'll give you all the more details where you know all the payments are going to be done through paypal um, i'm in the process of getting that worked out so if you're interested i'm telling you the slots filled up quick last year so don't 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 wait i mean it's it fills up quick that's all i can say uh yep i remember last year i didn't get to go because of work but i remember i remember kind of holding out for a while and it, and it just didn't didn't work out <laughs> didn't get you in <laughs> so i definitely yeah if you're thinking about it definitely do it sooner mm -hmm. rather than later yep um now with that mouthful out of the way um the backing dummy giveaway we talked last week with Joe Finney about his new and improved hamster wheel backing dummy. Uh, we are giving that away at the end of the month to one of the Patreon patrons. It's uh, The way we're going to do it is however much you pledge per month, you get that many names in the, the hat. So if you do $10 a month, you get 10 names in the hat. If you do five, you get five and so on. Um, we're going to start trying to give away little items like this once a month to our patreon patrons as a thank you uh you know nothing big this dump this backing dummy is really nice but we have some listeners that do a really good job of doing diy stuff making training equipment like leashes and check cords and then uh, another guy does leather work so he has some really cool collars and even uh, sleeves for the shotgun and stuff like that it's uh it's really cool, so check it out. You know, if the training camp isn't a big enough sell for you to to hop on Patreon or the giveaways aren't, then you know, if you're listening and you like the podcast, just go and support. You know, throw a couple bucks that way. If not, leave a rating and review. That helps just as much. It's free. It's quick. Uh, just real quick, five stars. Type out what you like about the podcast. It goes a long way and it means a lot. Harold, anything else on housekeeping? I don't think so. <laughs> you got a review already? I do. Um, pretty recently. Came in last Saturday from from Gunman Cow. Gunman Cow. Um, five stars. Says, my favorite Upland hunting podcast, hands down. 
Keep up the good work, fellows. You are doing good things. Cow. Nice. Straight and to the point. I like it. I appreciate that, Gunman Cal. Uh, if you're listening and you hear this, by, shoot shoot me an email, gundogityourself at gmail.com, and I'll get you a, a sticker or two and uh, a hat on the way for you. Um, I think that wraps everything up, Harold. We had we had a few things on the list to check off this week, but uh, you know everybody knows that housekeeping is our favorite thing to do anyway. Yep man a few words all right uh well guys appreciate it thanks for listening by all means please share this episode we say it every week but this this one is more important to us right now with the message and getting people involved in the conservation and habitat uh management by all means hit that share if you haven't already hit that subscribe button we're coming back next week with some more uh typical gun gun dog stuff related and uh, yeah with that being said i don't have anything left harold have a good night as always appreciate it man good night thanks for listening to gdiy if you enjoyed this podcast please remember to take a moment to subscribe rate review and share with a friend also be sure to follow us on facebook and instagram at gundog it yourself if you really enjoy this podcast and would like to contribute even more to future content please check out our patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself thanks again and happy hunting Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.